Well, men, the Super Bowl is upon us. I'm not sure if you knew that. But the Super Bowl is on Sunday, and it's between the 49ers and the Chiefs. Okay, we have like two fans. Anyone a fan of the 49ers? I mean, we're in California. No? A couple? A couple people? Okay. Who's rooting for the Chiefs? That's like, wow, okay. So we got 85% people not in the ball game at all. There's like, we're, you're just going to eat some food and watch the game. And then we have maybe 10 of you that are excited to, uh, to watch your team play. Well, as you know, in any NFL game, but let alone the Super Bowl, to win the Super Bowl, it takes quite a bit of preparation, right? It takes quite a bit of hard work and dedication and determination all throughout the year to get to that point to be the best of the best in the NFL that year. And as you know, and you may be familiar with, when someone wins the NFL uh, championship, what they do is they hand out rings as awards, right? They hand out the Super Bowl ring. That has become a notorious award all throughout the years. And you'd expect, okay, yeah, players, sure, right? Players are going to get the ring, right? Coaches, they're going to get the ring, of course, right? The, uh, the training staff and those type of people, the support staff, yeah, they get the ring, but a lot of times, the owners actually award the rings to, like, the lower uh, employees, right? They, the people that weren't really involved in any of the preparation of the game, but they're part of the organization, right? And they receive the, uh, the Super Bowl rings. But they didn't really contribute too much. I mean, they contributed, but they're a part of the organization. They're seen as uh, a part of the victory. They receive rings. Well, Why? Why do they receive rings? Because every single person has a responsibility or a duty in that victory, in that Super Bowl win. They all play a vital role in getting the team there, right? However that plays itself out, of course, yeah, the players are the most important, the coaches probably first or second in importance, but then it goes all the way down the ladder, but every single person is involved in uh, getting them to the Super Bowl and winning that, that football game. Well, there's another team that you and I might be more familiar with, maybe. It's uh, the church, right? It's an organization that has many players and coaches and valued staff members and employees and all of these people that are involved in this goal of, at least an internal goal, of growing and being strengthened and becoming more like Christ as a body of Christ, as a body of believers, and the church, it's called to be unified. It's called to be faithful. It's called to be a spiritually strong organization. And that takes every single one of us. That takes all of us uh, working and playing our part to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. This is so important for us to get. This is so important for us to get, and we can't miss this. The difference between our church being a strong and unified church and our church being a weak and divided church is our faithfulness to this task of building up the body of Christ. That's, that's the difference between a weak and a strong church. Are we going to be faithful as members of this church to build up the body of Christ? And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 11 through 16. So open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at these verses here as we go along in our study of the book of Ephesians. And as you know, in the first three chapters, as Pastor Kellen uh, helped us understand, they were all theological uh, chapters, right? We didn't get into any of this didactic, like you need to do this until chapter four. And then the next three chapters are going to be, okay, here's some imperatives. Here's some things that you need to do as a result of all the things that we just talked about in this letter. And he introduces this idea of us being unified in Christ as the body of Christ. We're all unified as believers in the church. And then it comes to our point here in verse 11. And he, Christ, he gave these four offices, right? They're gifts uh, to the, the beginning of the church and, and the ongoing church. The first office, we'll look through these together, is the apostles, right? He gave the apostles. Who are the apostles, right? There's a lot of people that want to falsely claim that they are an apostle of Christ today. Well, that's not possible because you were not sent physically by Christ to go out and carry out his mission. These are the 12 people that Jesus put the finger in their chest and said, go, 
right? These are the people that witnessed the risen Christ. These are 12 apostles, and this position uh, required uh, the apostles to do signs and, and miracles and wonders to affirm that they were who they said they were, right? It also, uh, these apostles helped write the New Testament, right? These are the, the men that, that wrote the New Testament. You think of Peter, you think of Paul, or they were in the New Testament, if we're going to get technical, there's people that were uh, close associates of the apostles as well. But they had these duties that are no longer required. They were for the building up of the uh, beginning of the church. That's what the apostles were, right? This is no longer in effect today. We have a written test, uh, New Testament. We have the Bible. It's, it's completely canonized. We're here. We're there. We, don't, we don't have this office anymore. Prophets. The prophets, right? That's that second office that Paul lists in our text, the prophets. Well, the prophets were people that provided in the early church the direct revelation uh, from God, right? They'd expound on the letters that, that Paul would write, or they'd expound on the letters that Peter would write. Or sometimes they would foretell the future, right? So there was a lot of like Old Testament prophecy happening in the New, in the New Testament church as well. But after the closing of the, of the canon, after the, you know, we, the church was established, this was a, a, a role that was only utilized in the beginning stages of the development of the church. It's not in fact today. We're not seeing these prophets uh, today. Now, to people, I'm, I'm prophesying to you right now. I'm speaking, uh, I'm foretelling what the Bible says. I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of God, but that's not what these prophets were doing. I hope you understand the distinction. The evangelists. So we got that third office, the evangelists. Well, these were the first missionaries, right? These were the church planters. These were the guys going out and sharing the gospel and planting churches and setting up churches and appointing people. That is, of course, still effect today. We just sent out a church to Texas, if you know that. If you're familiar with that, of course, I'm sure you are. We just uh, we, we sent out many churches. These are evangelists. These are missionaries. The shepherds and teachers. Notice that I said four offices, not five, right? So you don't see a comma after shepherds and then teachers to make five offices. You see this uh, combination of shepherds and teachers. This is really the pastor-teacher, right? The, the pastor is a person that should be equipped to be able to teach, apt to teach the Bible, apt to teach uh, uh, in counseling, or apt to teach uh, what is right and what's wrong, depending on what Scripture teaches, to the shepherds that they were the day-to-day -day edification of the church, right? So they were uh, developing the church in the first century, and they continue to go on and develop uh, or to pour into and edify the church today, right? That's what pastors are doing today. They're guarding people against false teaching, right? That's what the idea of shepherding. They're protecting the sheep, the flock, from false teaching, the wolves, right? So that's just the idea of shepherding. Okay, so those are those four offices that Paul lays out for us initially, and Jesus gave these four apostles to the, the early church to do what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Another idea there, or the, another word for ministry is service, right? They're equipping the saints. That's really where I should stop. They're equipping you guys, right? At least the pastors and the teachers are today. But in the first, uh, the first century church, they were equipping uh, all of these people. All four offices were doing these things to equip the saints so that you can go out and do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, right? So there's this idea of, are they doing all these things? No, no, no. They're equipping you to go do those things, to go build up the body of Christ, right? You and I have this responsibility to equip or to build up the body of Christ, and we'll talk about that a little bit later here. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, so we have three different things that are happening here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? So the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God is this full spectrum of Christian faith. Right? It's that they're equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ in all of Christian doctrine, right? in all of, uh, of the truth of Scripture, in all of the ways of being a Christian. And to mature manhood. This idea is it contrasts with children in verse 14. It's the idea of spiritual maturity, right? To grow them up in spiritual maturity. And then to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to grow them up in Christ-likeness. And it goes on, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children 
children in the faith, right? To be immature in our, in our faith. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, right? I mean, you, a lot of you have children or you at least are familiar with children and they're easily swayed by things that are, are false, right? They'll follow anything that you, someone gets excited about. I mean, I think about my son. It's like if I'm excited and I say it in a way that's like really excited, he's two years old. He's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's, oh, I'm excited. Let's do that, right? They're easily swayed, right? And, that, and Paul's saying, don't be like that. Right? And if you grow up in Christ-likeness, you grow up in spiritual maturity, you won't be like that, tossed to and fro by every new teaching, every false doctrine that comes around. Verse, uh, oh, and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's probably good that I finished the verse. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So the Ephesians... Uh, Paul is telling the Ephesians, like, look, this is how we're going to build up the body of Christ. We're going to speak to each other in, in truth, in a loving manner, right? Not tearing each other down, but growing each other up in truth by speaking in love. From the, whom the whole body, verse 16, joined together, uh, joined and held together, rather, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. So, if you're, of course, you, if you know the New Testament, you're familiar with Paul's analogy of utilizing this, this analogy of uh, the body of Christ. We'll talk about that more in a second, but every piece, every person in the Ephesian church had a part to play to accomplish this goal of growing in Christ-likeness. The main idea that I want you to walk away from with this, the main idea, the main point is that I want all of us to take seriously our God-given responsibility to edify and serve the body of Christ. That's the main idea. That's what Paul's trying to get at. He's trying to teach the Ephesians, look, guys, there's this responsibility that every single person has in the building up of the body, in growing in sanctification, not only themselves, but for the sake of other people. And how do we do that? Well, there's three points I want to draw out of this text for us tonight. Every person has a part to play. I've mentioned that a few times. And we find that in uh, verse 12 and verse 16. We're, we're uh, building up the body of Christ and that we're working together uh, in every joint with which it is equipped. We're working together. We have a responsibility to build up and spiritually strengthen the body. So point number one, I want you to realize the vital role you play in the church. Realize the vital role you play in the church. Every single one of us has a role, a function in this body, in this church body. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're done writing that point down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to see this analogy a little bit closer of the body, the body of Christ. The analogy that Paul utilizes, which I think is such a helpful analogy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 starts like this. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, right, us, people, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, right? So you got an arm, you got a left arm, a right arm, you got fingers, you got eyes, you got a head, you got a foot, right? There's people that collectively uh, make up the body of Christ, the church. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. Right? I mean, sometimes we have this tendency to think that, like, well, I'm just not, I can't be utilized. Like, I'm just not that important. You know, you'd be fine without me. Well, Paul's saying the exact opposite. Every single person has a responsibility, has a part to play. Verse 15, or 16, rather. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If we all had the same gifts and the, the same roles, then it would just be one role being fulfilled. We all have a responsibility, a different role. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, 
yet one body. Right? So we all are members, parts of this body of Christ, the church. We all consist uh, uh, of, we all are uh, making up the body of Christ, I should say. We all have this role and this responsibility to play here. There's this man named Charlie Plum. Uh, he was a naval fighter pilot. He was part of uh, the real-life Top Gun. And uh, during his career, he had 74 successful missions in Vietnam. And on his 75th mission, he was not successful. Sadly, he was shot down. Well, he hit the eject button, popped out, and he hit the parachute. Floated down, but he floated down into Vietnam territory where he was captured and he was imprisoned in a Vietnamese jail for six years. He was there. Well, he was released, um, and after he went back into flying for a few more years, and then after his retirement, he was sitting at a restaurant with his wife, and he was just eating dinner, and a man walks up to him, and the man says, uh, you're plum. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from aircraft Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. And Charlie's like, what? How do you know that? Like, what do you, how in the world do you know that? And he says, I packed your parachute, the man replied. I guess it worked. <laughs> you're here. You're alive. So this man, Plum, he didn't know that, of course, he was a Navy sailor. He was a fighter jet uh, pilot. Uh, there's different rankings, right? Different order of importance, if you will. But they both played this absolutely vital role. I mean, 74 successful missions during this war. And this guy that's just packing parachutes, saving lives, and he didn't even realize right? He didn't even realized that the parachute was, was packed by this man. The reason I'm bringing this up, I'm drawing this, uh, this illustration, or bringing this illustration to you, is because I want you to see that even a, a seemingly insignificant role is so vital to the process, the function of, of war, of, of a battle. Every single person is, is so important to this mission that we have for the church. We all have a role to play. Let me help you understand that as you realize as a Christian, every one of you has a spiritual gift, right? Or gifts, I should say. We all have spiritual gifts that are given to us uh, from the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, write that verse down. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift... Everyone's received one. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Now, if you don't use your gift, you'd be a bad steward of God's very grace, right? It's what the text is implying. We all have a gift that we ought to be utilizing or gifts to, to be utilizing for the sake of the church, of the growth, of the strength of the church, of the church body. We all play a vital part. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter where you're serving, you, I mean, you could be serving in something that has no exposure, right? I mean, some of you might even be on the prayer team in this room. It's like, but nobody knows you're on the prayer team except for the people that know you're on the prayer team, right? But that's an important role in our church. There's guys I know in this room that are in, on, a, on a different prayer team that pray with Pastor Mike every weekend on, for the sermon, right? It's, it's different. It's like, but they don't, people don't know that they're in there. But then you got guys like your MBS leaders that are sitting here at the tables with you that they got 20 guys that know what they're doing and they affect the li- uh, they have uh, uh, um, impact on the lives of the people that they disciple on a weekly basis. And you have all of these eyes on you, right? And in our eyes, we think like, well, that's a different level of importance. Well, I mean, maybe there's a different level of importance, but it doesn't change the fact that they're both vital, important roles to influence the growth and the strength of the church, I hope you realize that. There's different gifts given to different people for different purposes. And that's a good thing. That's how God has designed this to work out. We're not all called to be the same role. But as I'm thinking of serving, as we have to, as we look at our passage and we see Paul draw this out for us, that we're building up the body of Christ, we should be utilizing our gifts effectively. But a room this size, there's probably someone that's, or many, that have yet to find that serving post, right? Who are neglecting those gifts that they know that they need to be utilizing, right? I mean, a, a church our size, men, like, we should never have a need in a serving post, 
We should never have a need in a serving post. Or that need should be met right away. Right away. And I, I just want us to see that there is no reason that our ministries have this, not only because of how many men we have here that can be utilizing their gifts to, for the sake of ministry, but the fact that it's commanded to us by Scripture to utilize our gifts for the sake of ministry in many places throughout Scripture, that it's disobedience for us to not be serving in the church. It's disobedience for us to be doing that. I mean, you guys saw the reel, the pre-roll here with the little QR code of all of these various ministries that have needs right now that we could be filling. So if you don't have a ministry post, I'm just imploring you, find one. Get plugged in somewhere. Start serving. If you do have a ministry post, then great. See if you can expand your time, right, and serve in different areas. It's always helpful to reassess your gifts too and reassess your position and see if it's something that you should be doing or should not be doing. Where are you serving? Yeah, I want, you, I want to get real with you a little bit for a second. There's this common wrong thinking that sometimes follows this idea of serving our church. There's this common wrong thinking, and I labeled a few, but the first one is, you know, I just, I just don't have any gifts. I just don't, or I just, I'm just insignificant in these areas. We got to get rid of that thinking, right? I mean, because God tells us in his word that that is not the reality. That would be, really, it's offending the Holy Spirit if we're saying, I don't have any gifts. It's like, well, yeah, you do. I gave you those gifts. Let's utilize them. Every guy has a gift. Every person in this church has a responsibility and a duty and a role in the church. Or another one that I hear often, and maybe you've heard too, uh, I'm too busy. Right? I'm too busy to serve the church. I just got a lot going on. I got this really good job, and it just takes a lot of my time, and I just I don't know if I'm going to be able to fit it into my schedule every week. Well, then the priorities are backwards, right? And we'll talk about priorities in the, in the next point, but... We have to understand that Christ is the priority. We have to understand that you're not too busy, that we always, because uh, we're commanded by Christ to do this, we, we need to be obedient in this area of utilizing our gifts and serving the church. Another idea of wrong thinking, last one I have listed here is, uh, you know, I just can't make a difference. I can't make a difference. You know, and you may feel that. I mean, I get it. It's tempt tempting to think that in a big church. Like, how will I be impactful? with the gifts that I'm using. It's like, oh, well, this team has, you know, 10 people and they really only need eight, or this team, whatever it may be, whatever excuse that, that comes into our minds, that you can't make a difference, you can't make an impact. Well, you can make a difference and you can make an impact. Because again, we're promised that we all should be, that we've been given a gift that we all should be utilizing. You can make an impact on the church you can make an impact on that one individual that you encounter at the donut table, right? You can make a, a difference if, as an MBS leader if you commit your mind and your heart to serving those people in your small group. You can make a difference if you're faithful to serve as God has called you to serve. You play a vital role in the growth of the church. So what's the purpose, right? What's the purpose of of equipping the saints of building up the body of Christ, but we have to look back at verse 13 and 14 in our text to see what I'm talking about. What's the purpose of doing this? The purpose of, of playing our role, our vital role? Well, it's the objective of building up, right? And these three things that uh, Paul writes out for us in verse 13 and 14, the unity of the faith, right? The unity of, of sound doctrine. We're all in agreement of doctrine and faith. Growth in spiritual maturity, which leads then to an increased Christ-likeness. And then, of course, when we grow, when we're built up, when we're supporting one another and encouraging one another, what happens? Well, we're prevented from falling into error. That's what he's saying here. You go, you go from being a, 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 an immature child in the faith to a mature man in the faith. This needs to be a priority for every single one of us. Point number two, we've got to prioritize growing in spiritual maturity. We've got to prioritize growing in spiritual maturity. I just want you to imagine like an, an army of, uh, of trained soldiers, 
right? And you could probably just imagine it as you see videos online of, of other countries that are actually caring about investing into the training of their military, and they're being successful in doing so, and you see the effects of that where you see these, these guys that are, uh, you know, strong, and they're disciplined, and uh, they're, it's, it's, it's like they're ready to go. They're ready to fight, right? Versus a, an untrained army, and the difference that it would make and the impact that it would make if we were on the side of an, uh, of an army that was untrained. This idea of training our people, equipping the saints, because there's this mission that we have, the church, the church body, we're a unit that needs to be trained, well-trained, so we can be effective, so we can be impactful, so we can be doing something. That's why this needs to be a priority, right? I mean, have you looked out into the world lately and seen the craziness that's going on and think that there's not spiritual warfare going on? Of course there is. We need people that are trained up to go out and fight the good fight of the faith, to fulfill the great commission. That's why we need to prioritize this. That's why this is so important for every single one of us. And firstly, you got to prioritize your spiritual growth, your spiritual growth, right? You're prioritizing growth and spiritual maturity. It starts with you. When you grow, the church gets strengthened because you're actively involved in a, in a ministry post, because you're actively involved in discipleship. You're actively involved in growing in Christ-likeness. When you as an individual member grow in Christ-likeness, the church gets stronger, so you got to be focusing first on yourself. Paul uses these two words, right? He uses manhood, mature manhood. And then in verse 14, he uses the word children. And I alluded to this in the introduction where there's this idea of, of the difference between spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity, right? And there's different qualities in those type of, of people, of that type of Christian, Spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity. Now, barring you're a brand new believer, you're not going to be very spiritual mature. That's not who I'm talking about, right? Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've been, become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? There, there are Christians who have been Christians for a long time that are still eating milk. There are Christians who have been Christians for a long time that have yet to eat a steak, right? They still need to be trained in, in, in the beginning of, of uh, the Christian faith. And that's, it, it's, it's not because they're lacking like a learning ability, right? It's, 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 uh, it's, they're not prioritizing this in their life. And this may be true of some of you. And the three qualities that I point out is uh, the focus is not on uh, spiritual, it's on the world, right? Worldly priorities, that's a quality of a spiritually immature person is that they're not focusing on doing the things of the Lord. They're focused on what is my job, what's my next uh, you know, business venture, or what's my next job uh, task or, or priority. Spiritual growth gets put in the back burner, right? It gets put in the back seat. It's not as important for the spiritually immature person because they don't care. They don't want to grow in spiritual maturity because it's not a priority. This is someone Paul would identify as a child in the faith, immature in the faith. Another one, you know, they lack uh, depthness in their faith. They lack depth in their faith, right? And I think a lot of us can fall into this error from time to time, but it's a, it's a perpetual, habitual thing of just, I'm going to just check off the box, right? I, I got to read the Bible, so I'm going to be, I got to be at MBS, so I'm going to be at MBS, right? I got to pray, so I'm going to pray, Right? And it lacks the spiritual depth of wanting to grow in Christ and connect with Christ and connect with brothers in Christ and become a more mature spiritual believer, spiritually mature believer. It's outward obedience. It's not inward, right? That's a quality of spiritual immaturity. 
Another quality of spiritual immaturity comes from being undiscerning, right? And this comes from a lack of desire to grow in knowledge and grow in wisdom. Undiscerning. You can't discern, you can't decide or understand between truth and error. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as Paul uh, makes so clear for us in verse 14. Right? If we don't know the word, every false teaching that comes our way, we're going to think, oh, this guy is a Christian. He says he's from God. Therefore, this must be biblical, right? And gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of false teaching in the world today. There's a lot of stuff, I mean, not even including the church, but in the world telling men that, look, you got you to be like a woman in order to be a man, right? You, you got to take the back seat behind your wife in order to be a real man. You got to be submissive and quiet and not be a leader in order to be a real man, right? It's like the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us to do. It's like, I, I'm sure we're all familiar with this type of false teaching that's going on in the world. Or love yourself, or, or live for yourself, or do what's best for you. Where the Bible says the exact opposite of that is true. We see all of this type of stuff going on in the world today, and then we bring in the people that are calling themselves Christians, and they're preaching a false gospel, and they're preaching a gospel of works, or they're preaching that Christ isn't God, or they're preaching all of this nonsense, and people are buying it because they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because they're immature in the faith. That should not be true of any of us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You can't test the spirits if you don't know what's right and wrong. Right? You have to be knowledgeable of the truth. You have to be knowledgeable of God's word. A spiritually immature person does not know how to argue or discern between what's false and what's true because they don't know God's word. What are some qualities of a spiritually mature person? You know, a lot of these are just the opposite of what we just talked about. But the first one that I like to point out is eternal perspective, right? You go from having this worldly mindset, prioritizing things of the world, to prioritizing things of God. That's what a spiritually mature person does. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Right? Is, that, is it wrong for you to care about your job? Is it wrong for you to care about things of the world? No. But that's not the priority. The priority are the things of God. Your mindset is focusing on things that have eternal uh, uh, ramifications, have eternal uh, uh, value. Right? You have a constant eternal perspective. What can I do to reap into the kingdom? Having that eternal perspective is a quality of a spiritually mature person. Second item I wrote down was humility. And really in the matter, of course, in a, in a moral sense, right, we should all be humble and not be a prideful man, but also in this idea of humility before God. That's really what I'm going for with this is a spiritually, quality of a spiritually mature person is somebody who has a deep dependence on God. And that's someone who goes to the word. That's someone who is reading the word and studying it and drawing out the truth that God wants us to know and applying it into our lives. The spiritually mature person is being dependent upon God in prayer. Right? I mean, you think about what the act of prayer even is. It's you having to humble yourself before another being. Because you know that they are more powerful than you, and that's why you're asking them the things that you're asking them to do. So prayer, having a dependency on prayer, having a uh, servant-like mindset, right? That's a humble approach. You're, you're serving other people. That's a quality of somebody who is a spiritually mature person. It's serving other people, as Christ makes so clear in the whole gospel of Mark, that servant leadership is really leadership. When you're serving other people, that's the, the way to enter in the kingdom of God. Not like it's some works-based thing, but those are the people that will be first in the kingdom of God. Humility is also someone who's teachable. You know, we all have small group leaders in some sense here in this, in this room, 
And we're, we're, we're teachable. We, we want to be men who are willing to be trained in, in righteousness, to grow and to be um, corrected. And, and be, yeah, if you're not a teachable person, it, obviously that's showing that you're not humble, but you won't grow in strength. You won't become a stronger Christian if you're not a teachable person. And lastly, faithfulness is the third quality of spiritual maturity that I'd like to identify. Faithfulness, right? I mean, we look at the contrast of someone being undiscerning. The child in the faith is undiscerning, but the uh, man in the faith, the mature, the spiritually mature, is faithful, right? When trials and temptations and difficulties come, they stand strong like a rock. And they're faithful not because of their willpower. They're faithful because they have this deep dependency upon God. They've, they've trained in the word. They've grown in their faithfulness. They've grown in their dependency on prayer. You grow resilient through trial because you depend upon Christ. And there's also, of course, this natural faithfulness that comes in the form of rejecting uh, false teaching. Right? Because if you're faithful to God's word, you know God's word, you're able to discern between truth and error that we talked about. I want you guys to examine yourself. I mean, we should, all should do this regularly. This is not to say that, I mean, in some, a room this size, this may categorize some of us. But if this is something that, you know, I, I think I'm doing okay at these things. I'm do, I think I'm doing well. I think it's a helpful exercise to at least examine ourselves where we're falling short and growing in, those, in these areas. I mean, I only identified a few qualities of a spiritually mature man. There's many that you can think through and you can read in Scripture, but we need to make spiritual growth, this idea of growing in spiritual maturity, a absolute priority. This is what grows our church in strength. And when we prioritize our own personal spiritual growth, it leads us to prioritizing discipleship. Right? Because we grow, and therefore we learn that it's important to then go pour out to other people. It's important to invest in other people. So we've got to be prioritizing discipleship. That's what Paul's getting at here. When you're building up the body of Christ and you're leading them into these three categories, well, that requires intentional discipleship, one-on-one discipleship. Well, Pastor Roy, I'm not a small group leader. How do I do that? I don't know if you guys have heard, but we got a partners program. I'm sure we got, I'm sure we have definitely heard of that, right? Partners is such a great tool that we can all utilize in order to disciple one-on-one intentionally, right? If you've finished partners, then who are you taking through, right? Well, I don't know if I'm equipped to do that. I don't know if I could do, no, you've, you've gone through the program. You could do it. Take someone else through this program. And if you're not finished, let this be the, the smack in the back that says, hey, get on that one-on-one part, uh, meeting with your, with your partner, and finish that thing up. But it's a great tool, right? It's a helpful tool for us to uh, disciple one another. And that strengthens the church. Yeah, prayer, pray for each other. You can do book studies. I mean, also think about like um, discipling for, for you men here that are, that are married and have kids, you know, your wife and your kids. Like that, that's a, that should be a priority for you. That strengthens the church. Because then your wife gets uh, more um, sanctified. And then your kids, I hope, you know, hopefully become Christians at some point. And if they are Christians, then you're sanctifying them uh, every day by discipling them. It starts with us, guys. We have to be strong men of Christ. We have to be the leaders in this. We have to be leading the charge in discipleship. All right, look back at our text. We've got our final point here in verse 15 and 16 where Paul says, speak the truth in love, right? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom uh, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. I think that's key, and I'll leave it there. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Point number three, we ought to be willing to lovingly rebuke and correct to be willing to lovingly rebuke and correct. Because when we lovingly rebuke and correct, we grow in strength, we grow in Christ-likeness, and that strengthens the church, that builds up the body of Christ. 
I was doing announcements a while back in the main auditorium, and um, I was announcing the gap year, the gap year program. Some of you are familiar with. Some of your kids are probably going on that. Um, and I had said they, they're going on a couple trips. They're going to, to Europe. They're going to the East Coast as well. They we're going to get they were, were Israel, but we know what's going on there. Maybe that's not going to work out. Hopefully it does. But um, I was announcing the gap year, and I kept saying in the nine a or the five p.m. and the nine a.m. I said they're going to be studying the Enlightenment. They're going to be studying the Enlightenment when they go over to the East Coast. When it really is, they're going to be studying the Great Awakening. Now, if you know anything about church history, those are polar opposites. The Great Awakening is the good thing, right? Where the Enlightenment was a rejection of anything that was religious, right? The Great Awakening led to Protestant revivals and led to a lot of people getting saved in America and in Europe. This is a great thing. Complete opposites. Well, Pastor Mark gently came to me in the, in the green room and he said, hey man, it's, it's the Great Awakening. And I, Oh, oh, and it's like, I know the difference between the two. It was just like a mental thing and I messed up, right? But it was, it was just the gentle remark that he was just like, hey, it's, the, it's this thing, not the other thing, right? So I just say that to say that we need to be willing to make those corrections with one another in a spiritual sense, right? When it, when it comes to having accountability with one another, we need to be willing to lovingly re- uh, uh, rebuke and correct one another. Because it strengthens us. Because then what did I do at the 11 a.m.? I got it right because I was corrected. Lovingly. That idea of doing this lovingly is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3 says, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Gain nothing. It's meaningless. You, if your correction and rebuke does not come from a heart of love, we failed. You failed in that endeavor. Because it harms, it cuts, it hurts. And not only that, if it doesn't come from a heart of love, it typically comes from a wrong motive, which now, even if it was received well and the person that you gave it to corrected, you're in sin for correcting in the wrong, unloving, tactless way. Right? We have to be careful with how we approach people. And I think that's where it is, is it starts with our motives. We have to examine our motives when we go and correct other people, when we rebuke sin, call out sin, right? And when we correct that sin, we have to examine our motives because sometimes we can use this, uh, you know, speak the truth in love as this club to be able to bash anybody we want. Hey, brother, let me speak the truth in love to you real quick, but you're terrible, Okay, well, that's not helpful, right? That's not how this ought to be used. Or, hey, brother, let me speak the truth in love, but, like, I'm better than you. You know, that wrong motive of thinking we're superior to this other person, and that's why we're correcting them? No, it should always be with a motive of, of guiding them to become more like Christ. That should be the motive, is we're correcting and we're rebuking because, A, we want God to get glory, And B, because we want our brother in Christ to become more like Christ. We want that thing to be corrected. And if sin is not lovingly corrected, then what happens? It grows and it becomes a spider web and it gets involved in all of these other areas of our life. And it becomes a bigger problem than if we were just to be faithful as men to correct one another, that it would no longer be a problem. Our motives need to come from a pure heart. Love also means that we have to speak up, right? I mean, I think in our small groups, maybe, I mean, if you're close with a friend or something, it's, it's hard for me to articulate this, but like, I, we can't be a church that walks around on our tippy toes being scared to correct one another when there's sin that's there. And I think in our society, in our day, in the, in the age of the church, it's like we, we care so much about not wanting to offend, even us as Christians. When we have our brother in Christ, it's like we, we don't want, hey, man, that's, oh, that's bad, but like, I'll pray for you, man. You know, it's like that's the heart that we have when we're approaching a rebuke to someone in a correction. And that's not to say that you can't 
be strong with someone in love. In fact, a lot of times the loving thing to do is to be strong with somebody with their sin. But we, have a, we lean more on the, on the side of just kind of tiptoeing around the problem. Or it's like, oh, well, someone else will deal with that. Well, that's so obvious that like their small group leader will deal with that. Or like their, their, really, their wife might deal with that or their close friend might deal with that. But no, we need to be faithful to rebuke and correct in love because that strengthens the church. That grows us in not only unity, but in strength of the church. Right? We can't be people pleasers. We can't be people pleasers. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If we're trying to please one another by not calling out sin and not rebuking sin with the right motive, of course, remember, that's what we always have to do, is do it lovingly with the right motive, then we're failing. We're, not being, we're, we're caring more about the, the people than we care about what God thinks. And we can't be people like that in this church. The church will grow weak. The, the church will grow anemic if we're not calling each other out in, in, in sin. Now, I'm not, you know, may seem like, oh, this is happening all the time, all over the place, everywhere. It's obvious nobody's calling it out. That's not what I'm getting at, right? But I just hope that you understand and see that this exercise of, of lovingly rebuking and correcting is something that we need to be faithful to do. And I think there's a, there's a tendency to not be faithful in that, right? There's a, there's a tendency even to flatter other people. Proverbs chapter 26, 28 a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Yeah, we have this, this tendency, I think, to, to beat around the bush and, and just, you know, hopefully, hopefully they like me. I'm just going to hype them up. I'm going to say something nice. Hopefully they like me. Yeah. We just need to be more open in, in, in calling each other out. And I think we, we err on the wrong side often. And I've, it, it's, we're we're influenced by our culture, as I've already mentioned. We're influenced by that, you know, you don't want to offend. We're influenced by this idea of keeping everything on even, cool. like, just keep it. We're all good. Everything's good. Oh, hey, man, you should fix this thing, but, like, we'll, we'll pray about that later. I'll add that to my prayer list. So I'll follow up with you. Like, in accountability, in accountability, like Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, right? Speaking in love. You're restoring them to the point of righteousness when they're caught in any transgression. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But there's this idea of accountability. And accountability is sometimes thought of as this, this like, hey, did you do the thing? I did the thing. All right, man. Well, don't do the thing. And I'll pray for you about that, right? It's, that's not accountability, right? Bringing in practical help for a person that's struggling with sin, right? Bringing in practical solutions, leading them to leaders that can help them with this, bringing this person to biblical counseling, leading them through a book that talks to it. Like, it, it, it takes effort, right? Accountability takes effort. Speaking the truth in love, correcting and rebuking, that takes effort. It's not just a simple sentence of don't do that and you move on, right? We need to be more faithful to this uh, practice, especially us as men. We should be holding each other in a higher, uh, holding each other accountable more higher than we do other people in the church because we're the leaders of our households, right? We have this responsibility. Yeah, we got to get involved in the lives of our brothers, When we grow in sanctification, which when we lovingly rebuke and correct one another, when we grow in sanctification, the church grows. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? You shouldn't want someone to just give you the flattery and make you feel good or make, or make light of your sin in some type of you know, weak accountability session. Loving correction will strengthen us. And loving correction is oft, often hurts. It often hurts. And it's, a, it's for our good. 
It's a good thing. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17, last verse I'll, I'll have you write down or quote for you. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Right? That, I want to leave you when you have someone who, who has the right motives and is faithfully holding you accountable and is doing the right things and is not trying to people please you and is lovingly uh, correcting and rebuking, don't reject that instruction. Don't be a person that, that is, again, not teachable, that's not willing to submit to that correction and change. As a brother in Christ who's doing, like, they see something that maybe you're missing, right? Or if it's blatantly obvious and they're willing to call you out on it and they know about it. Don't reject that accountability. Instead, change as a result of it. Yeah, like the effort and devotion of a uh, NFL Super Bowl winning team, right? We need to have that same type of devotion towards one another in the church, right? We need to be faithful to one another. We need to be building up the body of Christ. We need to be edifying one another. We need to be faithful to serve the church and do this. We need to be faithful to hold each other accountable and to be intentional in discipleship and to prioritize our discipleship and our spiritual growth. When we're unified and faithfully utilizing our spiritual gifts, when we're unified and growing in spiritual maturity, when we're unified in building up other people in the church, our church is going to be spiritually strong. And it's going to remain healthy. It's going to be a healthy lampstand in this crazy world. And Christ is going to be well pleased with that. So let's pray together as we pray about that. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Excuse me. Thank you, God, for the blessing it is to come to your word and to be convicted in many ways and to be encouraged in other ways. And God, I do pray that this is a, um, a helpful message. I pray that this is something that is fruitful for all of us, myself included. God, that this is sanctifying, that this is convicting. And God, I pray now for small groups that these two are also uh, helpful for us in this endeavor of, of growing the, the church in strength by committing to our role, God. So help us with this. Help us uh, to be open, to be honest with one another tonight, to be faithful. Um, yeah, and I just pray, God, that we can leave this small group tonight more like Christ and with you more pleased with our, our efforts every single day. So thank you, God. Thank you for this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.